The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Lola Olufemi. We talked about her new book, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power. We chatted about the history of black feminist organising, the problem with mainstream liberal feminism and the generational divide in feminist circles over trans rights. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is the Verso Book of Feminism. Throughout written history and across the world, women have protested the restrictions of gender and the limitations placed on women's bodies and women's lives. The Verso Book of Feminism chronicles this history of defiance, from accounts of indigenous women in the Caribbean resisting Columbus's expedition to radical queer politics in the 21st century. The Verso Book of Feminism is an unprecedented collection of feminist voices out now from Verso Books and part of their October Book Club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Lola Olufemi is a black feminist writer and organiser from London. She facilitates workshops on feminism and histories of political organising in schools, universities and local communities. She is the co-author of A Fly Girl's Guide to University, Being a Woman of Colour at Cambridge and Other Institutions of Power and Elitism. Her latest book, the subject of our conversation, is Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power, which is out now from Pluto Press. The book is obviously extremely wide-ranging. So you go from discussing black feminist organising to talking about transmisogyny, gendered Islamophobia, prison abolitionism and food security. So could you explain what you were, what you were aiming to do in, in writing the book? What were you trying to, to achieve? And also, how did you decide what to include and, and what, to, what to leave out? I guess what I wanted to do was to create a kind of critical invitation to people who had just started... I guess, to question the world that we lived in without patronising them and to make the claim and to make the case that feminism is one of many political lenses and tools that we can use to make demands for our freedoms and for the freedoms of others and to really build liberatory visions of the horizon, to build liberated futures and to rethink the current social organisation of the world. And I think I wanted to do that in a way that made a critique of mainstream and liberal feminism that I think does a disservice to radical feminism's transformative potential. And by that, I mean, as somebody who who really tries their best to understand the radical genealogies of feminist thinking, I wanted to also make a counter claim to the idea that feminism is merely about the body, the self, about women, about equality, and to really do the scope of what it demands justice by asking people to, to extend their imagination, really, and to think about what could be possible if we demanded it. And in terms of 
what I chose to write about. For me, as somebody who does organising, it was it was really clear what the that there's a big disconnect between what liberal feminism or the feminism that emerges in a neoliberal age. And I, I in the book, I define neoliberalism as a, a set of policies and practices that have decimated infrastructures of social care through austerity, really privatised and individualised the ways that we relate to each other and concentrated wealth from the working class upwards. So I guess the claim that I was making is that the feminism that emerges from that age really, I think, disallows us to think more broadly about like the lives that we're living and is positioned the the way that kind of middle class gatekeepers of that specific feminism position it is as I guess a lifestyle choice as a hobby and not a serious political commitment to building more livable worlds so it becomes about you know individual choices that we make it becomes about stances it becomes about television shows and everything that happens in in a merely cultural arena outside of like material conditions and I guess I want I wanted to to reframe feminism as I understood it coming especially from a black feminist tradition in the UK and and across the globe as a a more determined political project and and as something that really asks something of those who who want to engage in it as a practice and what it asks of us I think is to give up ideas of individual success in favour of the collective I think it asks us to give up the idea that success is only climbing a ladder in which getting to the top is the main aim and a ladder that obscures the the exploitation of some women for the success of others and so there is I think a big disconnect between the priorities of that liberal feminism and the priorities of people who use feminism methodologically at a grassroots level. And that's how I came up with what the chapter titles would be, because I was like, okay, so what do we talk about? We talk about state, the state and state violence. We talk about transmisogyny. We talk about gendered Islamophobia. We talk about transnational movements and international solidarity. We talk about, uh, you know, the abolition of borders, prison abolition. Those are all the concerns that young feminists, I think, are kind of centering at the moment. And so, yeah, so it was kind of easy in that way to differentiate what my um, topics would be. And on the question of liberal liberal feminism, I mean, do you see liberal feminism and, and more radical forms to be inherently antagonistic? Or do you think it's possible to make alliances with liberal feminists, or at least with, with some liberal feminists? I think it depends on the issue. If there are coalitions that we might make in order to temporarily or urgently relieve the suffering of specific groups of people, especially those most vulnerable, sure, it's something that we might consider. But I also think that that is not within liberal feminism's purview. Like, liberal feminism is invested in a kind of representational project where the aim is equality to a specific class of men and then all other concerns are elided. Also, I think the sneakiest thing about liberal feminism or the most insidious thing about it is that it it is really happy for the sake of creating an idea of progress and a linear idea of progress at that. It's happy to not reconcile the gaps in its political thinking right so on the issue of domestic violence for example liberal liberal feminist organizations or the liberal feminist line will be that the best way to relieve instances of domestic violence is to invite the state and more specifically the police into our homes and to have this tough on crime approach which is you know represented in Theresa May's domestic violence bill which also coincidentally says that maybe the best thing for a woman who has experienced domestic violence is to deport her 
that's one thing that that liberal feminism you know has no answer for but when we come back to to liberal feminists and say okay we've seen what happens when we invite the state and more specifically the police into our homes it means that survivors of domestic violence end up in prison liberal feminism has no answer for that on the question of the police for example the police are always framed as saviors who come in and save sex workers from trafficking or save individuals from violent situations or provide support or protection for individuals against sexual harassment for example liberal feminism has no answer for the police officer who is also a perpetrator of sexual violence it has no answer for the black women who die at the hands of the police and the state for example it has no way to reconcile it it basically argues that their deaths are an unfortunate consequence of something that must remain. It, it doesn't want to question, it doesn't want to believe in a world where those deaths, you know, aren't necessary. And that for me is why I think it's so important to critique it because it's not necessarily about who gets left behind. It's it's an idea that fundamentally this is a hollow and empty political project. And we, as people who are trying to build new worlds, deserve more. On that point about the inability of liberal feminists, or perhaps just liberals more generally, I mean, we've seen some of this regarding Extinction Rebellion, that inability to, to recognise the, the societal role of the police and, and the extent to which the police are systemically violent. Do you think it's as, as straightforward as, as the fact that for many of these people, their experience of the police just is radically different because of their relatively privileged position? I mean, I often think to these people, the police must, they must largely seem to be like firefighters. They're people you call up when there's a problem, they do more or less what you expect and hope for them to do, which is obviously a radically different experience uh, for black and brown people. Yeah, I think what's incredibly interesting is that when we talk about the idea that we might be able to keep each other safe or the idea that the, the policing and the prison industrial complex aren't necessary, for example, people really can't think of any other situation in which, you know, when something went wrong, they're like, who would you call? But I think what that ignores is that there are whole communities who have never, there are whole communities for whom calling the police means death. And so what have those communities done to keep themselves safe? How have they built and maintained infrastructures that enable them to deal with the very serious problems that that will arise in any community without that kind of state intervention? How have they kept themselves alive as women? How have they organised to ensure that their daughters and their families and everyone is kept safe? There are very many successful examples of that, right? And so I think that's, that's another thing. Another thing is that you, like I said before, like, and I, I guess I take this idea from a Wendy Trevino poem, the idea that you like, what political projects ask you to do is give something up. And I feel like when you ask a specific class of people or a specific race of people to, to question the police, what you're asking is them is them to give up the, the protection that is afforded to them at the expense of other people. And for me, like, I'm really interested in are you okay with being the recipient of a kind of protection that means that other people must die? Is that something that that for you as somebody who cares about the world, who cares about everybody having an equal claim to, or, or a claim to life, or a livable life at that, is that something that you're happy to reconcile? That for me is impossible to reconcile, of course, because I've seen the sharpest end of what that means. And I, my politics is always geared towards people who are living at the sharpest end of, of the world. That, that is what matters to me the most. And for some people, they're happy to reconcile it in wh- whatever way that they can. But I think that the idea of asking people to give up something in, in the growth of, of political consciousness is also an, an important thing that we have to, I guess, raise as feminists. 
in the first chapter of the book, you describe the history of black feminist organising. And you point to the way that black working class feminism is, is very little recognised in our culture. And that instead, as you've been describing, we have this narrative of feminist progress as, as broadly linear, with feminism identified with the concerns of largely of, of white middle class women. So could you talk a little bit about that history, how significant it was and how, it, how it's come to be largely, largely forgotten? I think for me, when people ask me how I uh, how I came to feminism, I have two answers in, in that I learned about feminism in school, but also when I was kind of building or, or wanting to learn more about the, the histories of radical organising, I learned about what feminist practice is at a grassroots level from black women's formations in the 70s and 80s. So I'm thinking about the Bricks and Black Women's Group that kind of emerged in 1973 to 74, and all of the gatherings of black women that emerged out of black power movements because they needed to claw out a space for themselves, but one that materially addressed the concerns of black women that they saw were not being addressed or were being elided or obscured in other kinds of movements, right? And from that, I'm also thinking about OAD, the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent that was founded in 1978 as well. And the kind of campaigns that they they ran at, at a grassroots level, campaigns for reproductive justice against sus laws. Sus laws were laws that enabled police officers to stop and search people in the 80s setting up routes to political education through political consciousness raising workshops and I think for me understanding what they took to be at the very core of their politics so OWAD for example was just a coalition of women's groups and under the umbrella there was a whole range of political projects happening at the same time there were Marxist-Leninists there were people who were Pan-Africanists there were people who wouldn't have identified with feminism at all there were people who were hardcore socialists etc there were loads of people with different political leanings by whatever degree working under the same umbrella and that for me is something that really stood out in terms of reassessing what we think transformation and political progress looks like you know maybe it doesn't look like one singular vanguard party it's very ideologically homogenous yeah yeah like maybe it looks like the chaos you know a hundred different people making claims about the same things to differing degrees at the same time and so that that to me really broke up this idea of waves it broke up this idea that the that there is a history of feminist progress that can neatly be told where there are there is a centre and a periphery and that the only scope through which political demands were made were through the scope of law and policy. Because very much these women in, in black women's um, formations were doing what Sisters Uncut does now, which is working in against and beyond the state. They recognise the urgency of the moment, but they were always thinking about what happens after the state, right? What happens after its abolition? What is happening at the same time in internationalist revolutionary movements that are going on. I think there's a there's a quote in Heart of the Race by Stella Dazzi, Suzanne Scaife and Beverly Bryan where somebody says, you know, what, what was happening in terms of revolutionary movements with Samara and Mikhail was more interesting to us than what Jermaine Greer was saying about the position of women at the same time. And so I think that for me is, is what was at the core of understanding what feminism offers us. It really demands us to to do away with the idea that our lives can be separated by borders or by nations or by families, right? It's really connected by some idea of revolutionary spirit and revolutionary potential that is boundless in a way. 
it's also very interesting seeing how movements kind of overlap because the Pan-Africanist movement was happening in the UK with a big kind of spur in terms of black literature at the time. And so I find that that moment really replenishing in terms of thinking about what was possible and potential, I guess. On that point of the more transnational orientation of groups like OWAD, just recently I read an interview with Mike Davis where he was criticising the US left in the context of COVID-19 for, for, for being quite parochial and being very sort of inwardly focused, perhaps partly because of the, the sudden emergence of a large-scale socialist movement in the US. But do you think that inward turn, I think, you know, we can see some of that in the UK as well, and that lack of a transnational focus, do you think that's the fault of, of the left or does it just reflect the absence of radical organising and liberation struggles that there were in, in, in say, in Africa or, or in the Caribbean, if we're thinking about the 1970s and, and to a degree still into the 1980s? Obviously, this is in the 70s, it's, it's you know, the high point of, of the new left, really. I think the question that might be pertinent to ask is like, which left, right? Because I think that like social reproductionists, for example, who are like writing at the moment and who are trying to explain COVID as feminists have always had that internationalist focus and like I'm thinking of like Tithi Bhattacharya like the way that she's spoken about how social reproduction again crosses borders and how actually it's pertinent for us to think about what's happening in India right now what's happening in across the globe in different African countries as well like yeah I think in a way what you said is a kind of apt analysis of what happens in that I think borders have been reified so much the idea of the the border is so ever-present that we've really lost abilities to communicate and share strategies and ideas that, that perhaps were much easier before the onset of the internet at large because I think like we're also living under the specter of a kind of surveillance state so if you're doing any kind of like revolutionary organizing or if you're, if you're organizing in general you're on some government w- watch list somewhere and so it becomes it becomes really a lot harder to make those meaningful connections in terms of like what works in one area that that we might transport to another area yeah it, I, I think it's a difficult question to ask but I also think that while that may be a kind of apt analysis of certain parts of the left, I think it's incumbent on us to remember that there are always other parts that have always been internationalist in their focus. And what can we do to like reframe that so that becomes a core part of like what certain other people on the left are doing, right? Because what I find really interesting is the idea that there are some principles or ideas or uh, I guess movements that some people are just becoming alive to that for others have rooted and grounded their politics. And there's always going to be that dissonance. I think there's always going to be that disconnect. So I guess the question, the question is, after we've identified what that dissonance is, is to ask how then we, we reconcile all of these things that should come under any kind of like left analysis or organising or, you know, whatever. On a different topic, so you have a chapter in the book on trans misogyny, and as you said, you know the book is 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 sort of aimed at a younger audience, and it's part of a, a series of books from Pluto Pluto Press with that audience in mind. And I suppose one question I had was whether you think transphobia or what you prefer to call trans misogyny in a book, do you think it's something that is particularly prevalent amongst? younger cohorts because to my mind and maybe this is just because I spent too much time reading The Guardian The New Statesman but I tend to identify transphobia with people whose politics were shaped in the in the 1980s and 1990s yeah by what we would call the second wave I guess I think what I find fascinating is that it is not at all a major feature of the way that young feminists are organizing and I think that that has to do with a number of things I think it has to do with the idea that 
intersectionality as as a concept, a theory, however misused and misappropriated, has really, I guess, shaped even liberal feminism's understanding of the kind of claims that we make, right? The, the idea that very simply, I mean, this is a complete misreading of what intersectionality is. But I think what the liberal like machine does is make intersectionality about the a million and one different identities that we all have that, that are all important, which, you know, is wrong in terms of like what intersectionality actually asks us to think about as a principle. But I think that that's one of the reasons. But I also think that young organisers who are more radical are also leaning into and, and really immersing themselves in readings of critical texts, specifically from like a black women or, or, or black feminists or kind of radical organisers for whom transphobia was not a um, a core part of their political project either. So when we're talking about groups who in the 70s and 80s had material conditions as as the basis of their concerns, those groups were not concerned then about who gets to swim in Hampstead Heath and who is allowed in what bathroom, etc. They were really, really deeply invested and busied by the fact that they were dealing with ways to like redistribute at first resources so that everybody has a stake. And that means everyone. That means everyone that comes under the claim of women, anybody who who exists under that that banner in, in an attempt to make, you know, a unitary claim for the sake of our safety or for the sake of our lives, etc. And so, yeah, I think that the character of British transphobia is extremely interesting. And Sophie Lewis has, has written really, really well about that. And I really would encourage people to, to read that. But I also think it's based in a misreading and misunderstanding of the body, because the body has always been a central concern for a specific class and a specific race of feminists, right? That we that, that were emerging, we would say, like around the onset of the second wave, if we want to use that language. And a lot of it was essentialist in the idea of like reclaiming agency as an individual person in this world on the basis of sex. And what I think like post-structuralism does you don't you don't even need to have read post-structuralism to understand this but I I think what the introduction of like feminist post-structuralism theories by Butler etc do is unsettle this idea that sex is a fixed and immovable truth and we know that already because there are a million and one people currently living who confound the sex binary so we know that sex is a system of intelligibility that we have created in order to understand one another and that it has no meaning outside of our creation of it right but I think that sometimes gets banished to the realm of like it's kind of too academic and it's too beyond comprehension but if you look closely at radical formations black women have been saying exactly the same thing they've been making critiques of the idea that like woman is a unitary and fixed position from which we all speak and from which we all share the same ideas about right they they've constantly said from being placed on the periphery that black womanhood um, is not the same thing as white womanhood and that they actually as womanhood is defined by whiteness have been barred entry from it thinkers like Hortense Spiller have kind of talked about how slavery and the condition of slavery make gender impossible because people were devalued or because they were dehumanized and made flesh really made capable of being bought and sold and when you're capable of being bought and sold like cattle you don't have a gender in the way that we understand gender as a unitary system and and you know maybe that's an advanced concept of that that same thing but I can make the same argument by saying something like 
it doesn't make sense to me when unitary claims about womanhood are made because I feel excluded from what white women understand as womanhood. That is not my experience of womanhood as a racialized person. And so there's always, again, that disconnect. But I think a lot of tough, and I won't call it anxiety because, it, you know, it is a concerted effort to render trans life impossible that is now being mixed up with fascists and aligning itself with, like, the alt-right and the Christian right, fundamentalists, etc., yeah, they're, they're really invested in, in this idea that the, there is a one singular cause for all women's oppression across the world, and that is genitalia, that is biology, that is chromosomes. And it rings alarm bells in my head to make a critique of transphobia and then have a hundred bots in my mentions on Twitter, all with like XY chromosomes in their bios, telling me that I don't understand gender or feminism or that I don't understand the history of uh, radical movements. And so the way that I think about and understand gender is as, you know, a social phenomenon, as a cultural phenomenon. Um, and, and once we do that, we, we recognise that nobody <laughs> who is read as a woman ever is in a good situation in this world. You know, like, and that to me, ending that that position of subordination and ending the domination that we experience from from that position is what is important to me. Not standing outside the banner of womanhood and saying you can come in and you can't come in because I don't like being named as such. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't come into the, this world and like choose for my body to be named in this way. It was named in that way. And that's an important, and, and it might mean something to me individually, but in the, in the world that I'm seeking to build, that naming process doesn't happen. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.